Greetings in Jesus' name this morning. Does this thing look right? Not right. I, I had trouble getting it on here. Uh, too much apparatus on my eon ears. So, uh, what does it need to be adjusted, you think? Closer. Like that. Okay. Let me know if you can't hear me. Yeah, I appreciate what was shared this morning about God. Said uh, we're going to learn about God this morning. Yes, amen. That can never be exhausted because uh, we will spend eternity and we will not exhaust it then. We think of, sometimes we think of the irony of an understatement. I think that is the ultimate understatement of what we understand God and who he is and as we conceptualize him is probably the biggest understatement that we'll discover. <laughs> he was much more magnificent. Just think of ancient man before they had telescopes and they understood the stars and they were they counted them. I don't know how many some a thousand plus stars. And they got some crude telescopes and they got a little bit further. And they got better telescopes and went a little bit further. And they got now they have to hubble and 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 there's there's just no end. Unimaginable five hundred years ago what's all out there. But now we don't actually know what's out there. It's still unimaginable. <clears throat> so, yes, we can walk with God and have him as our father. Well, this morning, as um, the last message we had about uh, the beginning, well, let, let, let's, turn, let's turn to Acts chapter 2, and I'll introduce the message then after we read a few verses in Acts chapter 2. Starting at verse 41 to 47. Then they that gladly received his word were baptized. And the same day were added unto them about 3,000 souls. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and in breaking up bread and in prayers. And fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done by the apostles. And all that believed were together and had all things common. And they sold their possessions and goods and parted them to all men as every man had need. And they, continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, did eat their meat with gladness and singleness of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. Two weeks ago, I started a series of messages that was based on that essay that John Copeland wrote 
and the essay title was A Vision for Conservative Anabaptist. And in that, as a subheading, he asked the question, What are the challenges and opportunities for conservative Anabaptist church communities in the 21st century? And so in that first message, I expounded a little bit what a vision is. A vision is like a dog going down a trail of a fox. And then there's a stronger scent going sideways across the trail that is actually more attractive and more gripping than the scent that the fox is, than the dog is going after. But the dog that continues on that same trail and just lets that one go is the dog with a vision. Without a vision, people throw off restraint and live for the present. Vision is necessary for anyone to sacrifice presently for the benefit of a future. That takes vision. And the last part of that verse, but he that keepeth the law, happy is he. he. Then I asked the question, is, com- is community? Remember, um, okay. Anabaptist church communities. Is community really important in the kingdom of God? And I answered that question by observing that community is not just a Christian phenomenon. Community is a human phenomenon. We are social creatures, and as such, we relate with other people, and we create our societal structures. People are born, they grow up, they eat, drink, dress, work, play, create family structures of some kind. They organize schools and churches and business and governments and homeschool groups. <laughs> people do that. <clears throat> And some communities are healthy and nurturing and create a sense of belonging and security. Other communities are unhealthy and damaging to those that are in it. Some communities have a strong identity. You really feel and experience like you're a part, an integral part of that community. Others are weak with no strong sense of identity or belonging. We are social creatures and live in communities of some sort. But the question is not, is community important to God? The question is, what kind of community develops if people are in tune with God? That's the question. In the last message, I briefly outlined the different strata of community, a marriage, the family, and work, and government. Is God interested in this human interaction? Does he have a will in these matters? Will he bless and prosper some expressions of it? Will he judge and condemn other outworkings of it? And we respond with a hearty yea and amen. He will. He is. He does. So the last message, we spent most of our time exploring what community is and how God is interested in how it functions. And I said last message that this morning I would speak directly to the first challenge, to build strong, committed 
church communities in the 21st century. Now maybe you know why I struggled yesterday. (laughs) The 21st century. Why mention the 21st century? Why not just do what strong, committed church communities have always done? Well, we can, to a degree, we can learn a lot by observing good community examples of the past. What worked? What didn't work? What could have been improved? So, there is benefit in learning from history. There is. But the other side of the coin is that times do change, cultures do change, communities do change. And that is highlighted in John Copeland's full challenge. Here's the challenge. To build strong, committed church communities in an age of individualism and reluctance to commit. That is different. Not completely different in principle, but different in degrees than what has ever been probably in history. So, it has always been, and it always will be, a challenge to build strong, committed church communities. It was a challenge in the early church. There will always be things that threaten it. Sometimes it's false teaching. Sometimes it's persecution. Sometimes it's war. Sometimes it's materialism. I would say most of the time, or maybe all of the time, it's selfishness that threatens a strong, committed church community. Today, among other things, it is a challenge because we live in an age of individualism, and as a result, we have a reluctance to commit to anything bigger than my own will and desires. That is somewhat unique for our times. An icon of our times. Here, here's, here's what a church used to be like. Traditional church services proclaimed it's about God. Then, and that's good, Josh, it's about God. Then it's about us being formed as his people. That is what church used to be about, should be. The Jesus movement of the 60s that actually turned things upside down largely, the hippie movement, and there was a Christian element of the hippie movement, turned that thing upside down, And it's continued on, and that proclaims this. It's about you, and getting you connected to God. And that's a big difference. It's huge. Now, both are true. (laughs) But the emphasis are different. John Copeland describes it this way, after he gives credit that because of modern changes, many abuses such as torture, slavery, oppression, and poverty have been largely eliminated. 
Well, we could say at least some parts of the world, right? <laughs> he says the resultant cultural shifts have been in favor of the individual, individual rights and freedoms and beliefs and choices and gifts and potential. They're primarily about oneself. In the West, we simply can't imagine anyone but me being the ultimate, ultimate determiner of major choices in life of what beliefs and values I hold deeply, and nowadays of what I even think is right and wrong. Any group of which I am a member that attempts to dictate or even strongly urge what I ought to do or not do with my life or what I ought to believe or not believe or what is right or wrong for me is seriously out of place at best and abusive at worst. Now, these are not isolated situations that I have described here. This is our culture across the board. It's the world in which the Lord Jesus said, I will build my church. He will do it in this day and age. He has a plan and he has a plan for our day. Do we know what it is? Will we be willing to follow his plan? First, I have three points here. First, I will describe the best that I can what an ideal community is and the consequences, consequential benefits of being a part of it. Then I will describe the contemporary cultural winds that blow hard against that ideal Third, what can we do to move towards God's ideal of community? So those are the three points that we'll look at this morning. Number one, what is the ideal community and the benefits that come with it? And I will need to mention that this point will only look at the ideal. We will not look at the nuts and bolts. I'll do that in the last point. So this will be the ideal well, the ideal godly community includes what the first Christians experienced at the birth of the church. And that's why I read that passage. And I don't know if you're still open to there, but it's, it, they were baptized. That means they had some kind of common experience. Something happened. There was a repentance from their old ways. Salvation, it was salvation by faith in the Lord Jesus as the true Messiah. He had come and they recognized that and they accepted that. And they committed and they became a member of a specific organization. They joined a common cause and they had common activities together. Verse 41 in the uh, New Living Translation says this and all the believers devoted themselves, devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to sharing in meals and to prayer. What a powerful experience. What a testimony of the power and grace of God. So much so, I mean, there was such and such a powerful moving of the grace of God that as 
course, people from all around the world were there. There were lots of needs there that the local Christians sold their properties and met the needs that were there. And they did it with glad and generous heart. They were one. They were awe-inspired of what was going on. And they loved and they cared for each other. It even says they experienced the blessing of the greater community at that time. They say they were at favor with all the people. That includes outside. Not with everyone, but in general. Some people who did not, for whatever reason, believe in this Messiah Jesus, yet they admired and honored this new community of people. Now that, that's actually, now that is actually a, a witnessing tool. Let's say it that way. When people outside look at what you have going and they say, wow, that's something. That's a witnessing tool. Of course, the opposite is true as well. <laughs> if it's not going well, there's not much of a desire to be there. So they had, they had community. Later on, when there was a need, like the Grecian widows were getting neglected, the uh, the need was brought to the leadership. Leadership, we need to do something, and they organized an answer to the need, and they met the need. Still later, there was a dearth. There was a famine in Judea, and so Christians from other areas sent relief to their fellow Christians back in Judea. What area did this relief come from? It came from Antioch. And what's unique about Antioch? Anybody know what's unique about Antioch? Anyone want to guess? Yes, you know. Yeah, they were first called Christians there. Why? I wonder why. Well, I think they were following Christ. It was evident. And that was one expression of following Christ. They were caring for each other, the larger community. Then there was a major doctrinal issue. The the churches then met to find God's solution and to find a way forward. So this community had a common spiritual experience. Their past was somewhat diverse. But their future was united. They devoted themselves to common activities. To the apostles teaching which is the equivalent of preaching and Bible study. And brothers meeting. Fellowship. Taken down to the root. It's fellows in the same ship. They were fellows in the same ship. They were united. And going through life together. They were sharing in their meals. And of course that extends itself way beyond that. They were caring for each other. Their physical needs. Their finances. In sickness. In death. Mutual aid. They were caring for one another. And in prayer. Their love and devotion to the Lord Jesus was a corporate reality. So they met. To worship God together. To praise God together. And when they had needs, they prayed together. 
and their needs, to, to, for God to meet their needs. They appealed to the Lord together. You know, life is hard. Life is not easy for anyone. There is much disappointment and suffering. But in a community, what do you find in a good community? There is safety. There's security. There's friendship. There's exhortation. There's correction. Stability. Care. Belonging. Love. Joy. Structure. Safety net. A voice. Responsibility. Submission. Opportunity. Privilege. Order, direction, meaning, purpose. And what else did I miss? All of those are in a good functioning community. And they had it, I believe, in the early church. Life is hard, but a heavenly community, a people on earth who go by heaven's direction, is an answer to that. It brings glory to God. It is a city that is set on a hill. And it can't be hid. It is the salt of the earth that will preserve this world from total chaos. It is a peculiar people that have this community. It is a royal priesthood. It is a holy nation. It is the people of the living God. That is community. That is an ideal community that I described. That was my way of describing an ideal community. Number two, what are the contemporary cultural winds that blow hard against this ideal? I, this here is completely inadequate explanation. I mean, this is huge. So, again, I will do my best. There have always been strong winds that blow against this ideal. Always has been, and they always will be. But, what are the unique, and should we say, new winds that tear apart the building of this community today? What keeps this city from being built on the hill or what destroys it where are the strongest winds coming from the spirit of the age is individualism individual rights individual goals individual lifestyles etc etc i will do it my way i liked it the way i want it how did we get here how did we get here? Modern science and inventions have had a definite cumulative effect, a snowballing. It, 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 um, what's that word? Cumulative. That's it. I have the accent in the wrong place. Thank you. Cumulative effect. Harry Argyle details the history of media in a very interesting way that, that really stood out to me. It used to be when you were in a, I mean, you were. Everyone is in a local geographical area. And when you were there, 
many years ago, that's where you were. Now, the Indians, Native Americans here, they actually extended it. They had smoke signals, so they could send smoke over the mountain, and you could get, that was original media. (laughs) And you could extend it a little bit, okay? But, and in the Bible times, of course, they had runners, whether on foot or on horse, to send messages real quick. I mean, they had they had their ways, but you were in a local area. Modern technology has completely changed that. And you had to telegraph, and you had to telephone, you had radio, television, internet, smartphone. And I say, what a blessing that can be that I can WhatsApp. Tim sized it, and five seconds later, get a response back from him. And I thought, wow. I easily remember the day when I left for work, and I knew I wouldn't talk to my wife till I got back home. That's not that long ago. <laughs> then we also, that was communication, then also uh, in travel, the railroad, the automobile, airplane, were no longer confined to one spot in our community. We are able to commute much larger distances. And we like that. We are a mobile people. We can go to Florida for our wedding anniversary. (laughs) Also, we are much wealthier, much more than our grandparents were at at our time. We can buy our own stuff and our own equipment We hire professionals to do extra work. We have money to pay our own way. We don't need to borrow or rent or share or work together nearly as much anymore. So what's the matter with that? All of these things together work together to destroy the kind of community that used to exist. That's what it does. The intact community, the small town with the bank and the grocery store and the um, school, it's been replaced to a large degree with faceless institutions and Internet. Well, you say that's the general culture. That doesn't affect the people of God, it, the God so much, but the problem is it does. It does affect us. The same kind of chaos and order that affects the greater society also has an impact on the people of God. How is that? Well, in any new technology, there are societal effects, both positive and negative. Often, the positive benefits are immediately recognized, and that is why um, that is why they take off. That's why society accepted it. It's very positive. Very positive. So, instead of going down to the spring for a bucket of water, like we used to, not my day, but society used to, go down to the spring to get the water, you now turn the faucet and the water comes out. What it means is, instead of going out in the invigorating cool air, we stay inside our houses and become lethargic and obese. Really? 
Well, that's just an example of a possible negative effect of modern technology. It's not a given that that consequence has to happen. It's not a given. But it nudges us in that direction. And if you add the cumulative effect, the snowballing effect of thousands of technologies, the potential for negative impact increases. So, the potential for good is there. Instead of taking the time to go down, to walk down to the spring to get water, you stay in the house, get your water, and then you write a note to your friend who's struggling. I mean, you have to save some time, right? So you have more time. We all have more time now. And we're all not as busy now. Tongue in cheek. So the argument goes both ways. You can do positive things. You can also do negative things. Modern technology... Actually, I want to insert, I don't know, I want something I want to insert, I don't know where to put it, but I remember this, something Michael Pearl said many years ago. He, of course, is the kind of person where he feels you need a, some kind of a homestead to raise your children properly, because they need these experiences, and need to work, they need to, all those things. He said, you can raise a family in the city, and he's talking about city-city. You can raise a family in the city, but you've got to know what your disadvantages are so you can uh, purposefully, with focus, do what's necessary to overcome the inherent disadvantages of living in a city. If you know what your disadvantages are, you can do things on purpose to overcome them, and you can do it. Well, I think it's a little bit where we are here. We have modern technologies and we have blessings, but we must know some of the inherent difficulties so we can overcome them. That's what I'd like to uh, bring out this morning. So modern technology has opened individuals to the greater world and has given us the wealth to move into it. And a lot of that comes in the expense of local tight community. Now, add to that, add to the disadvantages of local communities disrupted by all our technologies, add to that the age of rebellion and distrust of authority, add to that a culture overemphasizing individual rights and choices at the expense of group strength and solidarity, add to that that this is the age of authenticity and you prove you're authentic by doing what you want to do. If you add all that up, well, let's add some more. I can buy my own things. Why do I need to borrow it from you? And we begin to see the vast negative effects, the downsides of our modern day. We can see the winds that blow against community. And in the middle of that whole dilemma is this saying, beneath our culture, 
Beneath what our culture calls a psychological disorder is a soul crying out for what only community can provide. The problem beneath our problems is a disconnected soul. And that is one of the results. There are more, more, more lonely people in this world, I believe, in this culture than there ever was before. There are more people in this world now who do not know who they are, what the meaning of life is, what the purpose of life is, the suicide rate, the drug addiction. There is more chaos and disorder than there ever was in this nation. And there's, it's many reasons. It's many reasons for that. But one of them is a destruction of community. Here's a quote. Through most of human history, we have relied on communities to find support and comfort. Being in community means more than merely having friends and people we can rely on. Our communities allow us to understand our place in society and help us to define ourselves. Even today, in non-Western societies, the value of communities is still maintained. It is only in modern Western societies today that we have moved away from the community and toward the individual as the source of value and contentment. Rather than community, we have focused on individual fulfillment and empowerment. Modern society has emphasized individual choice above community ideals. We are expected to select our source of meaning and purpose rather than using our communities to help us find those elements. In fact, in modern society, we look down on those who would expect denial of personal satisfaction to support their ethnic or social or religious groups. And we are not immune to the effects of our modern society. In fact, I am convinced that we are drifting along. No, not as far and not as fast. But if direction means anything, we're going the wrong way. We may have missed or inadvertently thrown away some things that would have blessed us today. Now, I would like to read, and this was read at the tent meetings last last summer, uh, the Harmony tent meeting. So some of you at least have heard this, but it's very applicable about the wind that almost stole it. I'll just read an excerpt of it. We have sought to make many good changes. I believe many of them are indeed of themselves quite good and desirable. But the thing that may be our eventual undoing is the introduction that we can so readily decide what changes are desirable. When we lose confidence in what our ancestors gave us and receive confidence in our own discerning, we have been infiltrated by the most insidious aspect of modernity. And although we gain some improvement in specific issues in the short term, in the long run, we and our descendants have been given over to the winds that blow with such irresistible force. This wind was at first a pleasant breeze, even welcome, 
as it brought in fresh air to musty enclosed places. But who could have guessed that the wind would keep on increasing and increasing and increasing? It has grown ever stronger over the years, bending and shaking and moving and stirring. Things that had not been bent and moved and shaken before. But we have gotten used reluctantly and somewhat fearfully to the fact that changes have come. And the church has struggled to understand and grasp what has been happening, let alone control and counteract and tie things down and make them secure. And yet the process goes on, not only goes on, but constantly accelerates. The gentle breeze changed into a steady wind. The steady wind increased to a worrisome gale. And while we look for a break in the relentless force, we suddenly realize that there is no relief on the horizon. The wind keeps on rising and pounding and breaking off and lifting and spinning and toppling. It beats on us with hurricane force and circles the globe and howling and shrieking. Nothing and no one can stand before it. It swoops behind the tall Andes mountain regions of the Amazon rainforest dwellers. It carries with it things and forces that have been illusion of being good and helpful. Medicine for the ill, missionaries and Bibles. It comes with promises and wonderful words like progress, enlightenment and deliverance. But its true nature is hidden. It will not be content to clear out the underbrush. It will not stop until the tallest and the loftiest and the strongest tree is uprooted and toppled. Every resistor succumbs to its force. No one is untouched or immune. In India, in Africa, Russia, no tribe so remote, no culture so resilient, no society so impenetrable, impenetrable but that the wind is felt and will eventually succeed. And in the end, yes, the end, it will bring the end. End of everything good, end of personal integrity, end of fear of God, end of family, end of community, end of commitment and loyalty, end of purity and virginity, end of church and brotherhood, end of tradition, end of obedience to parents. Progress? Not progress, but erosion, decay, and sliding ever downward. My dear children, it makes me angry. It's not right. It grieves my heart and wounds my soul. I'm afraid it will shake you and move you. Please hang on with all your might to what you have been taught. Now that is a pessimistic view. <laughs> But it's not without merit. It's not without merit. Let us have faith in God. The Lord Jesus Christ will build his church. But let's not bury our head in the sand and, and just, and you need to understand the cultural winds are against us. And they're against us strongly and they affect us. What can we do to move toward God's ideal of community. Here's a radical idea. The group comes first. In the social world of the early Christian, the survival and health of the group 
took priority over the needs and the desires of the individual. I think we could probably verify that in Scripture. But what I thought I would do in this beginning at this point here is I actually uh, checked and there's 59 times in the scripture where the word one another or each other and that kind of thought is given. One third of them is to love one another. One third of them had to do with unity. 15% had to do with humility and there was a scattering of others. Four of them had to do with kissing. Imagine that. Greeting, actually. I'll read the first dozen or so just to give you an idea as they are found in the scripture. Be at peace with one another. That's in Mark. Wash one another's feet. That's in John 13. Love one another. 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 Five times in John Be devoted to one another in brotherly love, in Romans. Honor one another above yourselves. Live in harmony with one another. Love one another again. Stop passing judgment on one another. Accept one another. Then, just as Christ accepted you, instruct one another. Greet one another with a holy kiss. When you come together to eat, wait for each other. What does all this mean? Among many things, it means because we belong to Christ, because we belong to Christ, we also belong to each other. And we are part of his kingdom, and as such, we are to care for each other. We are to inconvenience ourselves for each other. We are to blend in with each other. David Klein, an Amish man, spoke at an identity, uh, Anabaptist identity conference some time ago. And he said the story how he was out in his fields plowing. He's an Amish farmer. So he was out in those hills in Ohio plowing and he stopped to let his team rest. And from his vantage point, must have been on a hill, he could look over different places and he saw 15 other teams of horses plowing at that time, in springtime. That's amazing. But what was more amazing, he realized if he would be in any kind of serious trouble, he said every one of them would drop whatever they're doing and come and help him. He lived in community. It's it's an example. It's an example of how a community operates in the natural. And so for a vision for us to continue to move towards a strong, committed church community, I will spend the rest of the message on some nuts and bolts. And this one has five points. And I need to give credit to the book that Joshua gave me on my brother's keeper. <laughs> I, um, I got the points in order out of there, although I changed it personally for uh, our situation here. A vision, community, healthy community, committed communities, 
community that that you can view like you belong. What, how, not when, the when is now. How do you build, contribute, nurture that? That's the question. That's what we'll do the rest of the time that we have here this morning. Number one is to fellowship together. That means getting together more than on Sunday morning or Wednesday evening. That's the point of the point. But I thought I need to stop on that point, though. We all know the injunction, don't forsake the assembling of ourselves together. There in Hebrews where it talks about in these days we need to get together. Don't forget, forsake the assembly of the saints. When the saints gather, be there. Let's be real there. Yes, there's more to community than gatherings. But it's difficult to be part of something when you're only there half the time. Add up the times when we are missing for church because of recreational trips, business trips, family trips, anniversary trips. And then add the times when you are missing because you're sick or because you're injured. And then add the times when we go to another congregation, another church for a visit. Add the times that we miss the midweek service. Are you here half the time? Would you be considered strongly committed if you would work, be at work half the time? I would call that part-time work. Or would there be any other organization that would be okay to show up half the time? In school, when you missed a day, you needed an excuse card to explain to the teacher your absence. There are legitimate reasons to be absent. But the point is, fellowship is an integral part of a strong community, church community in this case. And it starts with regularly scheduled meetings and being there. If the meetings aren't what they ought to be, then come and make it what it should be. How about that for an answer? I know We all have our part, but we all have our part. (laughs) But it's good to go beyond that. It does as well to see each other in our work clothes, to organize work activities together. We built our greenhouse solar barn structure on a work day at home, and I I could probably find out the exact date because I remember going for lumber and in there they had a television set going and the U.S. had just invaded 
It was either Afghanistan or Iraq. I don't know which one. One of those countries back then. It was that day that we had our uh, work day. Neil has a yearly tradition of inviting families over to press cider. Sometimes we just stop at another family because we're going by and they have extra time while we stay longer. In fact, that's how communities used to do. Used to not have phones in our homes. If you went somewhere, you went there and they were home and they weren't home. And a little bit of that is okay. Well, at least I think so. Maybe you don't. (laughs) We can do service projects together. Ministry opportunities together. I think that the Pottsville ministry and the SOL ministry is actually an excellent way of fellowship for those that are involved there. So is Christmas caroling and fellowship meals and hikes and picnics and church retreats and father and son. One way to build strong, committed church community is to fellowship together on multiple levels. So that's number one, fellowship together. Number two, share together. Do you know what your brothers or your sister, what your brother or your sister is facing? Do you know what is below the surface? Do you know what blesses your brother's soul? Or your sister's soul. Can you share with someone your heart? Does the congregation know who you are? You know, we've heard the saying, well maybe you have, a joy shared is doubled. Any sorrow shared is halved. <laughs> it's true. If we have a burden, the last thing we should do is isolate ourselves. Everyone in the church has gone through or will go through a difficult time. And and so whatever you're going through, it's a good chance someone else has gone through it. Maybe not exactly. There's sometimes you can't relate exactly. I know there's differences like that. But when when you personally go through difficult times, it equips you to minister to others. But you can't minister unless we know what's going on with each other. It is really a blessing when you can share with someone and someone says, I truly understand. You know, what, when I got up this morning and I shared my experience yesterday, I did that on purpose. That is this point. It would be a blessing. It really would be a blessing if we would have to shut down free open mic time. That is actually one of the reasons for open mic time is for people to share hearts. Only one reason. There's other reasons as well. You can share a blessing or a testimony or a burden or a prayer request or an experience that you recently had, something the Lord has shown you lately, and many things like that. You, of course, you can bring your family up and just blessing in song, and, and there's many, many layers of blessing. Now, I know that some of us are more free to share publicly than others, 
But I have this question. If you do not share your heart with the bulk of the congregation, how will that build a strong community? Well, maybe open mic is too dangerous, and it is for certain things. That is why we actually have prayer meeting where we divide up in small groups that it is agreed that what's in here is confidential and we can share much closer. That is a, an element of our prayer meetings twice a month. And we share, or do we? Bottom line is this. Open up and sharing with brothers and sisters is a tremendous boost to brotherhood. Number three, mix together. Mix together. Whom do you regularly visit with after church? Is it normally the same people or maybe even normally the same age group or the same interest group? If, if you do, would you consider what you are doing? If that's what you do, would you consider what you're doing? We all have our best friends, and it's okay to have best friends. In fact, it's right. It's good to have best friends. There's nothing. That, that's a normal part of communicating. We have our best friends. But being with our best friends exclusively or mostly exclusively does not build a strong, cohesive church community. So if they do not have a mixing, the congregation does not mix well, we have an impediment to a strong community. So here are some challenges. Meet the visitors that come. Not just certain people meet the visitors. Meet the visitors. Older people intermingle occasionally with the youth or children. Youth, stand in with some older men or women's discussions. Try to get around and talk with everyone in the congregation at least once in a while. And when you do that, embrace them. Include them. Take an interest in their topics. Take an interest. Learn to know what the other half of the congregation's burdens are. Mix together. It's an, it's an element, a necessary element for a cohesive and strong cohesive church community. Okay, number four. Think together. To build a strong, committed church community, it is essential that there are spiritual discussions and Bible studies together. We are all on a journey, and we all influence each other. And as we're on this journey, it is essential that we go on this journey together as we walk with God. I mean, I'm trying to think of, well, the best way I can do is Acts 15, where they had a, a real issue in the church. They came together and they thought together. And they arrived to conclusion together and they went forward together. That's the best example I know from the scripture. Well, how can we do that? We don't have Sunday school, so we don't have that avenue to discuss things in that format. We don't have that. 
But there are others, other avenues. After service discussions are a good time. Visiting in homes and visiting, fellowshipping, thinking and our walk with God together is a good place. Bringing up those pertinent issues in a brother's meeting is an excellent place for us to understand the scriptures and to hear each other's hearts and for the youth to understand how the older ones think and arrive at their conclusions. It's not not just that the younger generation knows what the older think, but they understand how they think and why they think that. Good preaching and teaching is a factor as well, and as well as uh, Sunday afternoon discussion. You know, that is my favorite cliché. But it's not just a cliché. It is actually a part of thinking together. Those Sunday afternoon discussions. It's an essential part of building a strong, committed community. Think together. And number five is blend together. Here we have the delicate issue of the balance between personal conviction and group conviction. We need personal convictions. You will not survive if you only adopt the convictions of the group and you have no personal conviction. That is undesirable to the max. But So we need personal convictions. There are things that we either view as sinful personally or as very important in our lives, in our continued walk with God. They can be in areas of attire. They can be some family rules such as curfew or marriage. It can be about benefit auctions and homeschooling. There are a multitude of areas where we have personal convictions. Then others have their convictions. And then we come to a group consensus or some things on something that we deem important enough to address corporately. And how that is done, how, how that actually happens, how that actually works, is, has a huge impact on a church community. If that blending of personal conviction and group conviction is not accomplished well, we will not have a strong, committed church community. Or I could say it this way, if my personal convictions do not blend well with your personal convictions, even aside from the corporate convictions, we will not have a strong, committed church community. We will be individual people occupying the building at the same time, but we will not be a community. How do we blend well? Who has to do the blending? The quiet ones? The liberal ones? The conservative ones? The loud ones, the women, the youth. Yes, and yes, and yes, and yes, and yes. 
There, this is a spiritual exercise in a spiritual journey, blending with one another. This is where, what did I say? 85% of the one anotherings are. One third is love. One third is unity. And 15% is humility. Hey, we got our recipe here. We have a recipe from scripture. And the future of the church rests not only if we do it well, but how we do it. The only advice I have to give right now in how to blend well is to reiterate the first four points. To blend well, we need to fellowship together. We need to share together, heart to heart. We need to mix together. And we need to think together. And I think we can blend together. If we do that, if we're soaked in that kind of atmosphere of a true walk with God in that kind of way, I would say we will be able to find a way to blend together. We know there are always exceptions. But remember, exceptions should be exceptions, not the rule. So this is an attempt. What I have done this morning is an attempt to give us a vision for a strong, committed church community. I have a desire that we be a city that is set on a hill that cannot be hid, that others can look at and say, I would like to be a part of that. Have a vision that we are the salt of the earth that will preserve at least our little part of the world from total chaos. Have a desire that we be a peculiar people We be a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of the living God. Actually, I would like for us to be an oasis. And I'll close and then we'll go to prayer. Beneath what our culture calls a psychological disorder is a soul crying out for what only community can provide. The problem beneath our problems is a disconnected soul. Let us, if you can, let's just kneel for prayer. Lord, as we come before you, our God, we know that you have a vision. You have a vision and a purpose for your people. And you said that you would build your church. You did, and you will. And Lord, it is our purpose and our desire that we be an effective part of that building of the church that you said you would build. We thank you, Lord, for what you've done amongst us, Lord. And we thank you, Lord, for the many blessings you give us. And we thank you, Lord, for the, oh, Lord, the many things that we have going amongst us, Lord. And you, you, we are blessed. We are a blessed people. Lord, we also see a vision. We see heights to gain. We, Lord, we see places to go that we've not been at, Lord. And we see, Lord, there is much ground to be gained, Lord. There are many giants, Lord, that have not been conquered, Lord. 
And Lord, we only stand here in faith, not having conquered some giants, and know that you are able to help us conquer them. Lord, we need to trust you, and then we need to move forward in faith and in obedience to your will and purpose. So, Lord, I pray for each one of us, help us in each one of us, wherever we are at in this um, in this community, to recognize both the privilege we have and the responsibility we have to you and also to each other. So, Lord, we thank you. We are looking forward, Lord, to seeing what you will do in our midst. We pray, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.